you can go now to a time of children's worship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 will be our text. Now, as you're turning there, I'll give you an update on Emma. I'll do so maybe every other week, but the Lord has continued to be gracious. There's been no setbacks, still just small movements forward with how she is responding to us, her lungs staying clear. And certainly in our case, if you're not going backward, you're moving forward. So we are very thankful and gracious and are grateful to God for his work and for your prayers. So please continue to be praying. Now before I read the text, I want to point out that as we start verse 8, you'll notice the very first word if you're using the ESV is the word for. Now we are coming in in mid-sentence. Be aware of that. The main idea is found in verse 2. We give thanks to God. So Paul is continuing to tell why he is giving thanks for this church at Thessalonica. Paul is incredibly gifted by God. Paul is an incredible theologian, incredible missionary, but he would have failed English 101 uh, because this is another one of those incredibly long sentences where he just keeps giving reason upon reason that he praises God. So be in mind, keep in mind as we read this, we're coming in in mid-sentence pretty much. So with that said, let's start. Verse 8 through 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your mercy is more than our sin. And Father, in your grace, you have revealed yourself to us. So Father, this morning, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our lives, that we might receive your word this morning. And Lord, we pray this with confidence, knowing that as your word goes forth, it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. So Lord, this morning, let you find eager and receiving vessels to bring glory to your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. May 18th in the year 1980, there was an eruption of a volcano here in the continental United States. On that day, Mount St. Helens erupted, and it was quite an eruption. An earthquake measuring 5.0 on the Richter scale signaled that something unique and truly phenomenal was happening. When the volcano erupted, over half of the mountain was launched into the air. I mean, it not only erupted, it exploded. Exploded so greatly that ash Ground rocks lava shot up into the air 12 miles into the atmosphere. It, it launched a landslide that demolished over 200 square miles of wilderness. Demolished. Wiped it out. With an avalanche covering 100 miles per hour. It was actually caught on video. And the video is quite amazing when you look at it. What is even more amazing is this. The testimony of a lady by the name of Pamela Collins who said that the, uh, the glasses, the glass in her home, her windows, literally rattled and some of them cracked at the sound of the explosion. Now the reason that's amazing is she lives 190 miles away from Mount St. Helens. That's like from here to Chattanooga. 
the sound was so great. Now, if you'll permit me to draw an analogy. When the gospel erupted, and I mean when it erupted and was going forth across the world, it created sound waves that are continuing to this day. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about this church in Thessalonica. The reason I use that analogy is the wording that is found in verse 8. The word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's the language of a, of a trumpet that is sounding and the sound waves continue to reverberate. It's the language of a, a peal of thunder that echoes across the sky and you can feel it pounding in your chest. You see, the gospel was meant to have ramifications. It was meant to spread. You see this from the beginning of Scripture. When God called Israel to be His people, He called them so that they might be a witness to all the nations. This morning in the psalm that Nathan read, what was the psalmist's refrain? That all the peoples, not some of them, not only those in my general geographical locale, but all the peoples will praise you, that all the nations will know the glory of God. Jesus was clear that the kingdom of God was for all people. For sinners, for Samaritans, for Romans, for Jews, all were invited to come into the kingdom. The birth certificate of the church has written up on it, take the gospel into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. That is why we are committed to missions both near and far. Because our mandate is not to keep the gospel silent and to just whisper it among one another, just we stay here in this building where it's safe. Our mandate is to let the gospel shout to the world that is around us. The church is to be like an amplifier spreading the sound of God's word. Now to do that, we need to take a, a model, a page from the playbook of the church at Thessalonica because there are some traits of this church that factored into its gospel reach. And the first is this, a faith that shouts engages in evangelism. Now, I know, I know that that may go without saying, but as a preacher, I like to think I'm a master in stating the obvious. If we're not telling, nobody's going to hear. If we aren't sharing the gospel, people won't believe. That's the logic Paul expressed in Romans from Isaiah. How can they hear unless somebody tells them? And how can somebody tell unless they are sent? Notice there are two things that sounded forth from this church in Thessalonica that need to sound forth from us. Verse 8, first of all, he says, The word of the Lord. That speaks of source. Now, you can argue that the word here refers to the word that the content is of the Lord. And that would be accurate. But it seems to be in this case, he is speaking of a word who has its source in the Lord. Now, don't forget that when Paul uses the word Lord, he's referring to Jesus. This is part of the scandal of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. That is not a phrase that should fall glibly from our lips. Paul recognized that to make the statement that Jesus is Lord, he is using Old Testament language to express that Jesus is God. So this message that is coming forth it has its source in the Lord. So what is this message? When Jesus came preaching, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
He came preaching that according to to him when he read the prophet Isaiah that the day of jubilee, the day of freedom, the day of healing, he's saying it is here, it is fulfilled in your presence. He is saying that he is the Messiah. So the message that we are carrying to the world around us is the message that Jesus is the Savior. That he is the Messiah. He is the hero for whom we are longing. He is the rescuer that we need. He is the deliverer that we are hoping would come. And he has come. And by believing in him, you can know salvation. But this word did not go out in speech only. Notice this church is also signified by their faith. Their faith is going forth. And the language is used twice. Notice the word of the Lord is sounded forth. That is the gospel message. And now he says, your faith has gone forth. Faith here is the expression of belief in activity. This church continued to act faithfully, steadfastly, even in the midst of adversity. Keep in mind, this church was born in the midst of turmoil. When Paul preached in the synagogues, the religious leaders wanted him cast out and arrested because his message of Jesus as Lord was considered heresy. The message of Jesus as Lord was considered a threat to the Roman state who viewed Caesar as Lord. The gospel brought about conflict with those circumstances, with the culture around it, just as it does today. But nevertheless, their faith was steadfast. Their activity for the gospel was unhindered. You see, our circumstances must not cause us to cease proclaiming Christ. Just because we encounter adversity, it doesn't mean that's a time to pull back and to stop sharing in word and deed the love of God. Because we encounter persecution, it is not a time to pull back and to stop telling of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And even when we encounter personal problems, even when life doesn't go right for us, That should not dictate our faithfulness to live and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's got to be both. To live it and to share it. There's a statement that you've probably heard. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which actually has been found to be false. And it's this statement. You've probably heard it. Preach the gospel wherever you go. Use words if necessary. Many have heard that. Well, one, let me set the record straight from what I've been able to find historically. St. Francis of Assisi never said that. What he did say was this. It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. And all he was saying is, if you go to preach it, live it. That was the main point. Because if we fall into that thinking, preach the gospel wherever you go... Use words when necessary. We're in dangerous ground. So let let me give you a quiz here to make my point. First, did Jesus preach and speak while he was on earth? Okay, thank you. It's not a trick question. Second, did Jesus live a perfect life? Now, if we take preach the gospel wherever you go, use words when necessary as our motto for going into the world... All we have to do is live a life better than Jesus. He was perfect, right? And he preached. He was perfect and he spoke the truth. 
So if we're going to take, preach the gospel wherever you go, use words when necessary, just live better than Jesus and you can do that. We have to combine gospel presentation with gospel faithfulness. Now, the thing that makes us uncertain about this is, let me let you know a little secret. None of us live up to what we preach. So the way the enemy works is this. Who are you to talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know your sins. They're going to call you a hypocrite. And that's what you are. That's what the enemy says. Church, that's why we hold up the grace of God. That's why there needs to be a level of authenticity as we build relationships so that we do not puff ourselves up, but we show them that God is gracious and He restores. Think of it like trapeze artists flying through the air with the greatest of ease, but even they have a safety net. Now, that safety net for us is the grace of God. Now, you may stop and watch a trapeze artist. Just, yeah, you're walking down the road one day. Hey, it's a trapeze artist. Let's watch. But how long do you stay and watch if that trapeze artist falls and lays in the net? He's okay. He's still alive, but he's just laying in the net. You wouldn't watch very long. See, what happens is often we fall like a trapeze artist. We land in the grace of God, but we don't get up. We need to get up truly believing the gospel and being honest and saying, yes, I falter and I fail, but I'm going to be steadfast in my faith that Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to preach the gospel of grace wherever I go, and I'm going to live according to what the Apostle Paul wrote when he said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward what lies ahead in Jesus Christ. Because your life is not defined by your failures or your fallings. It is defined by your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why we need to accompany this proclamation with something else. A faith that shouts is humble. Now, I know that seems like a contradiction in terms. How can you shout humbly? But we must understand that the humble presentation of the gospel is crucial. One, I believe for effectiveness. And second, in honoring God. Now, I draw this point from verse 9. So, point, uh, point your eyes there. For they themselves, now the they is the church in Macedonia and Achaia... So as Paul's going out to these other churches in Greece, they are telling him what they have heard. And they say they're reporting concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now, there's some debate among linguistic scholars as to, to the phraseology of that verse. The way it's written here, the focus is on how the church at Thessalonica received the gospel message. And indeed, we have spoken of that. They received it with full conviction. But there's also another way to look at this that intrigues me. So I present it to you this morning. That word reception can also be translated entrance. So it's very possible that Paul said they, tell, they report, they tell concerning us the kind of entrance we had among you. Why would that make a difference? Because it shows the power of God. This is how. Whenever a famous order, rhetorician, or politician would enter a city, he would do so with much fanfare. There would be parades, 
children to be kept out of school to see this great speaker come in. But Paul's saying, when I came in, there was none of that. I came in quietly, meekly, humbly. And I did so because that points to the power of the gospel. So in other words, this would be an instance where Paul is not puffing himself up as if he is a great speech maker. Quite the contrary. We have evidence from the scripture that Paul was quite the opposite. Example, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, if you were looking for a great speech maker, Paul was not your man. He goes on to say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So in the end, no one could say, Paul persuaded me with his, his crafty speech. That in the end, they would say, it was the power of God moving upon me. Now, I want to walk a fine line here. I believe in preparation. I believe that we need to do what we can to be prepared to share the gospel. We must. But there comes a point where we recognize that, that, that success in sharing the gospel is not based on our ability to persuade. It is based upon the power of God. And to rest upon that. To know that God will accomplish His purpose. And to be humble enough to say, Lord, it is Your power that I must rely upon for anything good to happen. If we keep the challenges of our culture in front of us, we would come distraught and fall into despair. But when we gaze upon God and see His pot, His power, we know that the power to bring change and the gospel truth around us is found in Him. Now, I know this goes contrary to the media model of the world. In the, the saying today, if you want to be heard and have a voice, draw as much attention to yourself as you can. But if we will go out with humility, seeking to make the gospel known, God will honor that. To make it our priority to say, Lord, I want the gospel to be heard. Even above, if they never hear of Trinity Baptist Church, that's okay as long as they hear the gospel. That's the crucial thing. And then if we combine that with this point, a faith that shouts demonstrates the gospel. I believe we'll see the Holy Spirit work in power. The second part of verse 9 picks up this theme. The second thing that churches hear. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their faith was demonstrated in repentance. How they turn from idols is gospel language. It's the language of redemption. The language of repentance. They, they turned. They stopped following idols. Now, I recognize that idols, when we read that today, we think of the small wooden images, gold images, silver images that they would use in their homes to represent a God. But we must recognize that the human heart has always bent toward idolatry. You can identify an idol in your life because it is the place whether it be a person or a position or possessions that you place the highest value on. An idol could be that thing on which you base your identity upon. 
And it can come in a lot of different shapes and forms. And it can be very subtle. Did you know work can even become an idol as an example of what I'm speaking about? When our identity is only found in what we do, and our value is found only in what we do, what happens when we lose our jobs? What happens when there's a downsizing and you get that notice you're being let go? Our idol fails us because now we wonder what worth do I have, what value do I have? But church, if our value is in Christ and we know we are His and my worth is found in that I'm a child of God adopted into the family by faith, then no matter what circumstance comes, I know who I am, I know the value I have, and I know the purpose I have no matter what. You see, our idols will always fail us. That's why he says here, you turn to serve the living and the true God. First of all, our idols are dead. They cannot give life. Our idols will always take life from us. Using the analogy I did just a moment ago. If, we, if our idol is our jobs, what happens is to continue to grow in, in confidence, to continue to grow in value, we have to do more and more and more and more. And church, where does it end? It ends with a nervous breakdown. Because idols never give life. They only take it. And that's why he says you turn from these false idols to serve the living and true God. Our idols will always lie to us. Idols will always promise you more than they ever deliver. And that's why when a person gets the thing they wanted most in the world, they often feel empty and ask the question, what now? But idols are tenacious. They wrap tentacles around our souls and are hard to let go. That's why it takes the gospel power to make it happen. And that's why it's costly. See, when this church turned from idols to serve God, the members paid several prices. Every family had a patron idol. Every family would. It may have several, actually. So suppose your family worships Artemis. And you come home one day and say, Mom, Dad, I love you, but I've come to believe in this Jesus of Nazarene, that he's the Messiah, and I can't worship Artemis anymore. You've just brought in your parents' eyes the curse of Artemis on your family. And more than likely, they're going to say, you've got to get out of this house Otherwise, we're going to be cursed. At the time that Paul was writing this, there were work guilds throughout the Roman Empire. Think of, think of it like unions. Every union had a patron, god, or goddess that they worshipped as a union. You show up at your local union 373 and tell your union boss, I, I can't worship the idol anymore, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, if you don't worship that idol, our, our God's going to curse us and we won't find work. We can't have that. Here's your pink slip. You're no longer employed. Do you understand how costly it is to leave idols behind? Today, when we turn from idols, we will feel the pressure of society around us. When we no longer measure value, by what we have, but whose we are, the world will not understand. 
That's why it's important that we are focused on turning to God. Turning to Him. Because that's where life is. David Kincannon wrote a book, it's about 10 years old now, called Unchristian. I tried to find updated statistics on this and I failed, so I give you these recognizing they may be a bit dated. However, I fear they are still accurate. Of non-Christians surveyed in this sample, 84% of them said they know at least one committed Christian. One. But out of that 84%, 15% of them said that the lifestyle of that Christian was significantly different from the lifestyle of the world around them. Now, this is what he's getting at. For the most part, the non-Christians saw no difference in how they were living and how the Christian was living. If we are turning from idols to the living God, there will be a difference. A difference in what we value, a difference in our love, a difference in our commitments, our difference in how we live our lives. And one of those differences is found in verse 10. As they turn from idols to serve God, to live actively for Him, it also involved waiting. Waiting means expectant hope, patient hope. Waiting is not inactivity. I've likened it before, and this is very apropos since my, my daughter Sue Logan is now in her eighth month of pregnancy. She's waiting, but still active. Waiting, but doing what she can to take care of the, the baby in her womb. That's the idea of waiting here. Because this waiting is not antithetical to serving. You serve as you are waiting. But notice what they're waiting on. For his son from heaven. That's the second coming. It tells us that part, a crucial part of Paul's proclamation of the gospel was the return of Jesus Christ. Now, when we get to chapters 4 and 5 of this book, we're going to dive deeply into what the Bible teaches about the return of Jesus. But Paul here just whets our appetites by saying, first of all, he's coming from heaven. That's the language of the ascension. Remember, when Jesus ascended, the disciples were watching and an angel appeared and said, Why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back one day. So Jesus is in heaven reigning with God the Father at the right hand of God the Father. And then he says, Whom he raised from the dead. Now this is our guarantee about the return of Jesus and what will happen when he returns. He focuses upon when he raised him from the dead because... Our hope is that when Jesus returns, we will be transformed. You see, the hope of the gospel is not just that we will be spirits floating around in heaven. The hope of the gospel is this, brothers and sisters, we will have new bodies that are free from the taint of sin, living on a new earth and a new heaven, a redemption of all of creation. This is brought back because Jesus rose from the dead as a guarantee, a down payment on what will come later. And it is this Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, at the return of Jesus, God will set things right. God will judge the world. And part of that judgment means that His wrath will come.
Now understand that preaching the wrath of God is not popular nor often well accepted. Because many believers have bought into the idea that the love of God and the wrath of God are somehow opposite. They can't coexist. But I submit to you that because God is loving, He expresses His love in wrath. See, love is not apathetic. If God was apathetic, He wouldn't care. There'd be no judgment. But because God loves, He loves His people, and He loves His creation, He will come in judgment. How can He set things right if He does not judge? What sins will He overlook? What rebellion will he give a, a wink and a nod to and say, that's not that bad, you can continue in that? No, the wrath of God is part of proclaiming the gospel. Because we need to know what we are saved from. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, will culminate one day when Jesus returns. And the only hope of deliverance on that day is faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we, like, we can think of the wrath of God when it comes to those out there. But when we get right down to it, the scripture teaches that all of us would be under God's wrath. Because all of us rebelled. And the only way to be delivered is to believe in Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, He took the wrath of God. And those who have faith in Him do not have to fear that day. First John writes about this. Love is perfected so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. For those of you that have ever gone in to take a test and you're not prepared for it, you know what lack of confidence means, don't you? When you sit down for an exam and you know I have not studied, if I get my name right, it will be an act of God. Are you prepared for that day? Do you have confidence of what will happen on that day when Christ returns and you stand in front of Him? The Scripture says you can. Because His love is perfected in us for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. I believe that's speaking of the righteousness of God that's attributed to us by faith. Then He says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. All of this is in the context of God's judgment. Those in Christ do not have to fear the judgment day of God. You don't have to fear. Won't it be a glorious day to know on that day when you stand before God and your mind may be racing, remembering all the sins you have committed, to know that Jesus will look at you and because you have believed in Him, He will say, What sins? <laughs> Enter in. You are righteous because of Christ, because of what He has done. Church, that should drive us to live for Him and to spread the gospel so that those who, who are not even aware that Jesus is coming one day will know and they can be prepared for that day. I was struck with a twinge of, of conviction when I read this story from Mark Buchanan. Mark Buchanan is a pastor and an author and he had visited the Brooklyn Tabernacle on a Tuesday night. Now, if you're not familiar with the Brooklyn Tabernacle they're famous for their choir, but they're also famous for their prayer meetings, which take place on Tuesday nights. Mark Buchanan described that prayer meeting like skydiving in a tornado. 
He said you can't imagine what it was like for 3,500, 3,500 people, God-hungry people storming the gates of heaven for two hours. He said after that prayer meeting, they went to eat, he and his friend, with Jim Cimbala and his wife Carol. He said during the meal, Jim looked at him and he said, Mark, do you know what the number one sin of the church in America is? Mark said he began thinking, but the question was rhetorical. So Jim Cimbala looked at him and he said, Mark, it's not the plague of internet pornography. It's not the divorce rate. It's not anything else. The number one sin of the church in America is that we are not on our knees crying out to God saying, bring us the drug addicted. Bring us the prostitutes. Bring us the destitute. Bring us the gang leaders. Bring us those with AIDS. Bring us the nobody else's that nobody wants, whom you only God can heal. Let us love them in your name until they are whole. Church, would we be audacious enough to have a faith that shouts to pray that? To pray, give us those in Jonesboro whom nobody else gives a hope for and to say, we want to show them the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel changes lives and gives hope for eternity? Would we risk such a venture? Oh, faith that shouts will do that. So I ask you this morning to join me. To join me in praying Lord, let Trinity have a faith that's not whispering, but shouting the glorious good news of the gospel to the world. Bow with me in prayer. Oh Lord, forgive us for we have become apathetic and ease, at ease in the gospel. Forgive us, Father, for where we have turned a blind eye to the world around us because, Lord, it's hard these days. It is difficult to follow Christ. Forgive us, Father. Forgive me for where I have become at ease in Christ. Lord, bring revival to us that we might hunger to have a faith that shouts to the world around us, Jesus was crucified and He has risen from the dead and He is coming again. Be ready. Oh, Father, let us proclaim to the broken that there is a place where they belong. Help us to proclaim to the hurting that they have a home in Jesus. Help us to proclaim to the suffering that there is a Savior that they might know Jesus is Lord. Father, stir our hearts that we will shout the gospel and that we will live it to your glory. For it is in your name that we pray. And the church said, Amen. Church, would you stand together? We have a task before us, a task to finish. Let's sing it. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that our slothful ease we who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we Side thee, hold their unhindered sway. 
crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. Listen to these words. We go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message ours, fired by the same ambition, to Thee we yield our powers. We go to all the world with King hope unfurled no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord no father who sustains Oh, Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired. From cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake. Forth on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake. power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Oh, we go to all the world His kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. I must confess I'm tempted to do as they did in the old days to give us a five-minute break and then come back here and preach again. As I read this text that I'm about to read, I wanted to just conclude with part of the vision that Paul saw on the Isle of Patmos because a faith that shouts will actually be shouting into eternity. Hear what John wrote. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, let's go and share the good news of the Lamb.
you are dismissed.